Well, as I mentioned, uh, Christmas is next Sunday, which means the Sunday after that is January 1st, 2023. Can you believe it? We're almost in 2023. With the, the new year quickly approaching, can I ask, that, is there anything that you want to get better at at the start of the next year? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we got one honest person here, yes? Any, anything else? Anyone else? A, some kind of New Year's resolution you're, you're hoping to accomplish next year? More prayer time. How pious. Say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Jamin. Anyone else want to top that? Any pious? <laughs> no. Well, it, interestingly enough, I'm glad I'm actually I'm glad Jamin mentioned that because I, I actually recently read a study that found that only ten percent of Christians are content or pleased with their prayer lives. Uh, that means over 90% are not. Evidently, Jamin's one of those 90% of people that are not. But, but, but in, all, in all seriousness, uh, can I ask, and I hope, is, is prayer something you would like to improve on next year? I, I, I hope so. I hope that's for all of us. In fact, one could argue that for the Christian, fewer disciplines are more important than prayer. You see, as the Bible makes abundantly clear, uh, prayer is not optional for the Christian. It's not like an add-on. No, the Lord Jesus Christ expects and calls all his followers to pray, to have prayer be part of the everyday rhythm in the believer's life. So, so this morning, here's the question that I want us to consider, and that is, how can we improve? This could be tailored just for Jamin, uh, basically. <laughs> no, 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 but I pray for all of us. How can all of us, corporately, as a church, improve in prayer? Specifically, what should we be praying about and how should we pray for one another? That's the question I want us to consider because I believe our passage this morning answers those very questions. If, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. That's page 977 in that paperback Bible in the seat in front of you. This morning we're going to be studying the last half of this chapter. And as we're about to see, Paul is going to begin in verse 14 with these words, for this reason. If we're reading our Bibles carefully, that phrase sounds familiar because that's how he started chapter 3, for this reason. But then he kind of went off on a side trail, really on a side trail, but he took the time to express and to explain and he wants the believers to know he did not want them to lose heart. You recall this from last week. Don't lose heart. He see, 
the Ephesian believers, they see that he's in prison suffering for the gospel. They, they look around him in the city of Ephesus. It seems like evil is having its day. And he's like, do not lose heart. And his reason not to lose heart is because the church, the redeemed people of God, is very significant. And he can elaborate on several reasons why that is. Well, now Paul, he kind of resumes his thought for this reason, which I think goes back not only to this idea that we don't lose heart, but also what he says at the end of chapter 2, that how through the church God is making something new, a new temple of God. So let's, let's pick things up. In chapter 3, verse 14, we read this. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, this is God's love for you, being rooted and grounded in God's love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen. This is God's good word. As many of you know, the Louvre is the largest museum on earth, boasting more than 3,800,000 ,000 works of art and a gallery that is over 600,000 square feet. It is considered by many historians to be the greatest collection of art in the world and without a doubt, the top museum in Paris. However, in addition to rare pieces of art, there's something else that this museum is home to. You know what that is? Copyists. You see, each year, Paris's premier museum grants 250 permits to amateur and professional artists, allowing them to copy the masterpiece of their choice. Here's a picture of one gentleman doing that. The museum opened its doors to copyists in 1793. It was then declared that any artist, any artist, would be provided an easel free of charge to take up the challenge of 
painting a masterpiece. This is still true today. But while the easels are free, artists around the world can wait up to two years in order to be granted one of the limited permits that they hand out every year. In this museum, copyists are allowed to work for up to three months, having access to the galleries from 9 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. from September to June, except on Saturdays and holidays. Now, let's ask the question, this is the first question I had, maybe it's your question too. In this digital age, right, any painting can be viewed with just a few clicks of the computer, right? I mean, seriously, you can have access to any kind of painting with just a few clicks of a button. So why the need to go to this great museum in Paris? What is gained by setting up shop in a museum for three months? Well, as any painter will tell you, something incredibly value is gained by viewing the painting in person. You know what that is? When you're there in person, you get to see the actual brush strokes on the original. As post-impressionist painter Paul Cezanne once said, quote, the Louvre is the book from which we read. Faith, I want to argue that Scripture is the book from which we learn to pray. And in this passage, we are privileged to see the brushstrokes of the Apostle Paul's prayer. You know, in the Louvre, you will see copyists painting the work of great artists, right? Just like this fellow here. But you know what? In many ways, that ought to be the church. That is, we ought to be found carefully replicating the divinely inspired prayers in Scripture. I mean, why wouldn't you not want to imitate the best? So, let us first observe and apply this example, this example from the Apostle Paul, and that is, pray for your local church. Pray for your local church. What is Paul doing in this text? Uh, what is Paul doing in this text? He is praying. He's praying. And who is he praying for? The local church in Ephesus. This, I want to argue, is, you could say, the big brushstroke. The, the main application from this text. Pray for your local church. You know who that is? Us, right here, look around. That's us, Faith Community Church. You know, one of the things I've been proud about this past year is our first of the month fasting and prayer meetings for the church building. Thank you to everyone who has been fasting and praying for us as we seek to find a, a permanent building. And just so you know, we are exploring new and fresh ways different ways for us to gather together to pray for our church in 2023. However, I, I believe, and I, and I think all of us, could be participating a little bit more in praying for our church. Indeed, I want to invite you to make Faith Community Church, us corporately, a regular item on your daily prayer list. 
Yes, please pray for individual members of this church by name. But could I ask, could you please also pray corporately for us as a church body? And what should you pray about? Well, once again, let's get our cues from Paul's divinely inspired prayer in this text. You see, Faith, as we study this prayer from the Apostle Paul, I want to argue that we are instructed not only on what to pray, but also how to pray. And my encouragement is that we would pray in this same manner for each other. That is, we would pray in the same content, in the same posture as Paul for each other. So what does that look like? Well, notice first, I'm going to encourage you, that when you pray, pray in humility. Look again at verses 14 through 15. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Uh, this past week, uh, I was at the gym, and about halfway through my workout, a friend of mine, actually probably uh, an acquaintance, he comes up to me and says, Hey, Aaron, uh, I got a spiritual question for you. And uh, you know what his question was. He says, Aaron, tell me, how can I know that God answers my prayers? Good, good, I mean, I've just had a few conversations with this guy. <laughs> Great question, wouldn't you say? In fact, put yourself in my shoes. You don't have to say it out loud, but how would you answer that question? If someone came up to you and said, hey, how do I know, or how can I know, that God answers my prayers? What would you say? You know what? Here's an even better question. How does the book of Ephesians answer that question? Specifically, how does Ephesians 2.18 and 3.12 answer that question? Have your eyes fall there. For what do those verses say? They clearly teach that the only way we have access to God the Father is through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know what I said to my friend at the gym? Exactly that. I asked him a question. Tell me, uh, what do you think of Jesus? What do you think? Of, and, and tell me, why do you think you need him? And then went on to say, because, friend, the good news of Scripture is that God the Father always hears the prayers of those who belong to Him through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it's appropriate for me to ask us right now, friend, have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you come to a place where you have recognized your sin and the judgment, the, the, the just judgment you have earned for your sin, eternal separation from God in hell? And have you gone all in trusting the person and work of Jesus Christ, His death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, to not only forgive you of your sin, but to give you a righteousness so that you would be accepted by God? Friend, have you put your faith in Christ and Christ alone? 
We only have access to the Father through Christ. Because notice, when Paul says there, I bow my knee before the Father, we should not read that in isolation. No, Paul previously taught that through our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, we have access to God the Father. Not only that, in chapter 3, verse 12, Paul teaches that we can, listen to me, boldly approach God with confidence. And you know what Paul's doing here in verse 14? Precisely that. In the verses I just read, 14 and 15, Paul is modeling what he previously taught. He's boldly approaching God the Father in confidence. Yet notice the manner in which Paul prays. Yes, he is boldly approaching God the Father. However, he is doing so, notice, in humility. This is what is meant when he says, for this reason, I bow my knee. Now please hear me. Paul's not pulling a Tim Tebow before Tim Tebow. Okay? No, what he's doing is he's simply displaying a posture of humility. As every commentary I read this week pointed out, kneeling was not a common position for Jews when they prayed. The typical position was one of standing, as we see today at the Wailing Wall. The posture of kneeling is unique and communicates humble submission. And we do see this elsewhere in Scripture, for example, and this is, I think, rather significant. Solomon knelt in prayer at the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem in 2 Chronicles 6.13. Now here, the Apostle Paul, seeing the new temple being built by living stones through the person work of Jesus Christ, us the church. Paul now seeing this new temple that God has made in the church, what does he do? He bows his knee in prayer to the Father. His posture is one of humility. And truthfully, is there really any other way we ought to approach God in prayer than in a posture of humility and reverence of Him? Uh, Pastor and author Kevin DeYoung has correctly pointed out that there are two dangers in praying, and perhaps you've noticed these yourselves. He says the first is to pray like we are in charge, and the second is to pray like God isn't. And you know what both of those dangers have in common? Both of those dangers are the symptom of a prideful heart. Both dangers believe they know better than God. That's the sign of a prideful heart. And you know what? This pride, I want to suggest, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I think it's true, this pride lurks in all of our hearts, does it not? As, as someone once said, the difference between you and God is that God doesn't think he's you. Right? Faith, let us rid ourselves of such haughtiness. Let us do away with being wise in our own eyes. Let us instead pray with humility. Okay? So, so what does that practically look like? Does it mean kneeling? That could, that could be a, one way to do it. But why, I want to suggest three things of what it means to pray in a humble posture. What's a humble heart? First, 
A humble heart is a thankful heart. If we're going to have a posture of humility before the Lord, a humble heart is a thankful heart. That is, a humble heart sees all of life as a gift. It recognizes that I am not owed anything except judgment for my sin, yet praise the Lord, on the cross, Jesus Christ drank the cup of God's wrath dry, so no condemnation now I dread. Right? Everything else is gravy. I, I am owed nothing. A humble heart is a thankful heart. Second, a humble heart is a teachable, one that's open to correction. As you go to the Lord in prayer, Lord, I, I pray, this is what I think, this is as best as I can discern, but it's, it's humble. But then third, a humble heart, I want to suggest, acknowledges exactly what we see here. God, you are Father, I'm the child. You are the creator, I'm the creation. You are the king, I'm a subject in your kingdom. You are the provider, I'm the one in need. When we pray, pray for your local church, and when you pray, pray in humility. But then second, pray for strength. I want you to notice how Paul mentions this twice in these three verses. Look again at verses 16 through 19. So he kneels before the Father, verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened. There's number one. Strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And why does he want you to be strengthened with power? Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's number one. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength. There it is again. And what does he want us to have strength to have? To comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. When you pray, pray in humility for power, for strength. In his book on prayer, we, we studied this actually, uh, the men did um, several years ago. In his study on prayer, author and pastor Timothy, Tim Keller makes this really stunning observation about the Apostle Paul's prayers. He writes this. He says, it is remarkable that in all of his writings, Paul's prayers for his friends contain no appeals for changes in their circumstances. I once shared this with my wife Stephanie, and Stephanie said, well, I don't want Paul praying for me. <laughs> he then goes on. He says, it is certain that they lived in the midst of many dangers and hardships. They faced persecution, death from disease, oppression by powerful forces, and separation from loved ones. He goes on. Yet in these prayers you see not one petition for a better emperor, for protection from marauding armies, or even for bread from, for the next meal. Paul does not pray for the goods we would usually have near the top of our lists of requests. Instead, you know what we see Paul pray for most frequently? We actually see it in this passage I just read, and he prays that they would have strength. 
Notice he prays for it twice, for 16 and 18. Specifically, and this is very important, Paul prays that God would strengthen them by his Spirit, according to the riches of Christ's glory. And I'm going to want to show you, he prays that we would be strengthened to do three things. Three things. And the first is that we would have power to, number one, accept Christ's authority. There are certain things that require strength. Moving furniture. Building a house. Okay? Spiritually, there are things that require strength. Divine strength. And one of the things that we need divine strength for is to accept Christ's authority. This is what he is getting at when he writes in verse 17 that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now think back with me for a moment to verse 18 of chapter 1. That was Paul's first prayer of this book. And remember what he prayed there? He prayed that God would, to the Ephesian believers, enlighten the eyes of their hearts. As we've discussed here, in the Bible, the heart is not just the seat of the emotions. No, in Scripture, the heart refers to the mind, will, and emotions. In other words, the heart is your directional system, your steering wheel. I like to, to think of it this way. Uh, the heart is the operating system that runs the apps of your life. Right? And we've mentioned this once before. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson put it this way. He says, The things most highly treasured occupy the heart, the center of the personality embracing mind, will, emotions. And thus the most cherished treasure subtly but infallibly controls the whole person's direction and values. So notice when Paul prays that Christ would dwell in our hearts, he's praying that at the core of their being, their heart, they would treasure Christ. That is, they would see Him and have Him be their highest rule in authority. That He would rule and reign as King. You see... There are, there are actually two words that Paul could have used when he said dwell there in verse 17. One word that he could have used means to inhabit a place as a guest, kind of like, you know, you stay at a hotel room. Now, sometimes you stay in a hotel room, you don't even just unpack your bags completely. You're there real quick, and then you leave. You're only there for a few days. That's one word he could have used, but that's not the word that Paul chose to use in this text when he said dwell. No, instead he used the other strong, more permanent word. The word that means taking a permanent residence to really settle down. Paul is praying that we would be strengthened to treasure Christ, to have him be our greatest treasure, and to accept his authority and rule over every aspect of our lives. Could we please pray this for our church? Could we please pray this for one another? That, that God would strengthen the members of Faith Community Church, 
you who I'm viewing right now, that God would strengthen the members of Faith Community Church to accept Christ's authority in all areas of their lives? That we would come to value Him above all things. They would come to accept His rule and gladly submit to His good commands. So, for example, so that when your, spin, your spouse sins against you, let us pray this so that when your spouse sins against you, you are not ruled by your emotions or by worldly wisdom, but instead you would joyfully submit to Christ's commands, doing what He has called you to do in these situations. You know, I was reflecting upon this. Is it not true, friend, I'll just confess, is it not true that our default is to try to wiggle our way out from under God's authority and His good commands that we are bound to obey? Do we not drift, always drift toward wanting to live for ourselves rather than Christ? So church, please pray that God, by His Spirit, would strengthen us to accept Christ's authority. Pray this for the married couples at faith. Pray this for the youth at faith. Pray this for the singles. Pray this for the children. Pray this for those of you who are caring for elderly parents. Pray this for grandparents caring for grandchildren. God, please strengthen our hearts for Christ to dwell in there. Indeed, also ask that God would strengthen us to apprehend Christ's love. This is what Paul is getting at in verses 18 through 19. Look at what he says there. Having been rooted and grounded in love, God's love for us, verse 18, may have strength, there it is again, to comprehend with all the saints. And what is it you want us to comprehend, Paul? What is the breadth and the length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. In the tragic comedy, A Thousand Clowns, there's a child, a little boy, who looks at his mom and tells his mom, Mom, I love you six because six is as high as he can count. In that moment, the little boy stretches the extent of his knowledge to express the magnitude of his love. Notice in the passage I just read, the Apostle Paul prays that God would strengthen us to comprehend and to know the love of Christ that surpasses the limits of understanding. You know, you might be able to count higher than six. I hope so. (laughs) Yet even the greatest number is too small to express the magnitude of God's love towards you, Christian. Notice how Paul describes God's love. There, There are four magnitudes. Breadth, length, height, and depth. These are poetic expressions of God's infinite love. Breath illustrates his accepting love. As we, as we think about these four categories, I think it's quite easy to see what Paul means as we consider what he's previously taught. 
breath illustrates his accepting love. As Paul previously taught in Ephesians 2, the love of Christ embraces both Jew and Gentile, right? And anyone from a background who, from any kind of background who comes to him for mercy. You know, perhaps some of you are tempted to think or believe that you are beyond the reach of God's love because maybe your background is too immoral or too stained or too dysfunctional to be genuinely loved by Jesus. We need God's help to grasp just how wide the love of Christ is. Length, I want to suggest, illustrates his lasting love. Think of what Paul taught in Ephesians, in Ephesians 1. In love, God the Father predestined us for adoption when before the foundation of the world and will continue to love us for all eternity. So he loved us since eternity past and he will love us for all eternity. Speaking of love, I love what Spurgeon said about this verse. Spurgeon writes this. Christian, be encouraged by this. He says, referring to God's love, it is so long that your old age cannot wear it out. Yes, hallelujah. So long your continual tribulation cannot exhaust it. Your successive temptations shall not drain it dry. Like eternity itself, it knows no bounds. Amen, right? Height, I want to suggest illustrates his exalting love. Remember what Paul taught in Ephesians 2, 6-7. Paul taught the love of God in Christ does not simply save us from hell, but according to those verses, it also lifts us high into heaven, right? What does Paul write? He says, God has raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And why has he done this? For an expression of his love, because he says this, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Oh, how high his love goes. And depth, I want to suggest, illustrates his sacrificial love based on the context of Ephesians. What did we learn in chapter 1, verse 7? In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. How marvelous. Faith, let us pray that we would apprehend, we would comprehend and appreciate this love. We've been rooted in the love of Christ. Let's be strengthened to truly experience it. Again, D.A. Carson, I think, is very helpful here. He says this. He says, Paul is not asking that his readers might become more able to articulate the greatness of God's love in Christ Jesus or to grasp with intellect alone how significant God's love is in the plan of redemption. No, he's asking God that they might have the power to grasp the dimensions of that love in their experience. Let us pray to that end, because you know what would happen if we truly apprehended, if we truly comprehended God's wide, deep, vast love for you, Christian, you know what would happen? Anxiety would immediately evaporate. 
Why? Because I know my God loves me with an infinite love. I know He is wise, so that whatever He's allowing to come in my life, whatever the future may hold, I know God is doing it out of love for me. I don't have to fear. I don't have to have anxiety. I don't have to wring my hands in nervousness. Let's pray that God would strengthen us to comprehend this love. Amen? But not only that we would apprehend Christ's love, but notice how Paul concludes this, this part of his prayer. But that we would advance in maturity. Notice that, that wonderful phrase there at the end of verse 19. Filled with all the fullness of God. I understand this to mean that Paul wants them to know the love of God in Christ to the end that they might be all that God wants them to be. Again, as New Testament scholar D.A. Carson has said, the idea here is that so Christians would be spiritually mature. This is a prayer that we would advance in maturity. And who wouldn't want to be part of a church like this, right? A church where all the members are praying and they're growing in their Christian walk. A church where they're accepting Christ's authority in every aspect of their life. They're, they're comprehending the deep love that God has for them in Christ and all the implications. They're advancing in maturity. Who wouldn't want to be part of a church like this? So let's pray to that end. Let's pray to that end. And faith, when you pray, I would also want to encourage you to do so with expectancy. This, I believe, is what Paul is inviting us to do in verse 20. Notice what he writes there. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to, again, the power at work within us. So pray in humility for power with expectancy that God is going to move, that He's going to act. Uh, several years ago, Wayne Gretzky was in London with his family on vacation. If, if you don't know who Wayne Gretzky is at this point, shame on me. Okay. <laughs> For those of you new who are or maybe watching online, uh, Wayne Gretzky is the greatest hockey player in the history of the solar system. Well, so he and his family, they were in London on a vacation, and they, did, they just so happened to be in London when England was celebrating Canada Day. I guess that's a thing over there. They have a Canada Day. Well, part of the festivities involved for Canada Day was having street hockey tournaments. So in several of the parks there in London, they had a bunch of street hockey rinks built. Well, Gretzky was with his son. They're, they're walking in the park when they noticed a guy wearing a Canadian hockey jersey with the number 99 on the back and the name Gretzky on there. And they noticed that this guy is intently, I mean, he's intently watching and paying close attention to one of these street hockey games. So Gretzky, he looks over at his son and he says, you know what, son, you know what I'm going to do? That's what he's like, I'm going to go make this guy's day. Do you know what Gretzky did? He walks right over to the guy, stands shoulder to shoulder to him. Stands right next to him. Stands there for a few minutes. And after a few minutes, he notices the guy, he doesn't even look over to see who's standing next to him. The guy is so focused 
on the game. So to, in order to hopefully have this guy look over to see who's standing next to him, because Gretzky wanted to bless this guy, sign an autograph, take pictures. Gretzky just decides to start some small talk, and he says, so um, are you enjoying the game? Guy doesn't take his eyes off, and he just kind of says, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm enjoying the game. He's like, okay, well, what else can I do? So he says, oh, well, uh, I see you have a Team Canada hockey jersey. Are you from Canada? And again, this guy is completely focused on the game. And this time, he answers almost with an irritated voice like, get away from me, leave me alone. He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I'm from Canada. The idea is, leave me alone. Do you know what Gretzky did? He left him alone. He turned around and walked away. On a recent podcast, Gretzky said this, Look, I gave the guy two chances. I was ready to make his day by signing his jersey, getting a picture of him. I was even going to visit with him for a little bit. However, he never even took the time to look at me or to talk to me. Faith, one of the many grievous aspects of prayerlessness is that like that guy with Gretzky, we fail to engage with the one who could do far more than we think or imagine. How sad. For as Paul clearly teaches in this text, our God is so great. He is so powerful. He is so magnificent that he's able to do far more than we could ask or even think. How amazing. But only if we would ask. And to ask expectantly that he will answer. Now I, I have to confess to you, uh, this passage was, has been very convicting for me, and especially this last point, to my shame, I need to confess to you, that there have been times that I've been surprised that God has answered prayer. Especially in the counseling room. Hearts I thought that could never be softened. Relationships I thought that could never in a million years be restored. God has healed. Indeed, He has done far more abundantly than I could ever think or imagine. Christian, what seems impossible to you? Whose heart seems too hard? Whose troubles seem too insurmountable? Faith, when we pray, we are praying to the one who can do far more than we could hope or imagine. Let us therefore pray and let's expect him to act. Amen? Then lastly, Pray to God's glory. That is, pray with the aim that God would be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus. Look at the doxology there in verse 21. When he says, To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So, church, pray for your local church. Pray in humility, for power, with expectancy to the goal, to the aim for God's glory. I love what John Stott says, commenting on this verse. 
This last verse 21, he says, God desires glory in the bride and in the bridegroom, in the community of peace and in the peacemaker. This is why we entitled this series, God's Glory Displayed Through the Church. God has chosen His Son and the church to be the location where His glory is made known for all time. Let us pray with this as our aim, that God would be honored and glorified in all things. Lord, would you be honored and glorified in the way that I interact with my children and spouse today? Lord, would you be honored and glorified as we need a permanent church building as we pursue for that? Lord, would you be honored and glorified as we wait on you to answer prayer? Lord, would you be honored and glorified as we love our kids? Lord, would you be honored and glorified when I'm sinned against? that it respond in a godly way. Lord, would your glory be made known in Christ Jesus and in us, the church. To close, I want to just do something a little bit differently. Uh, I just want us to take a few minutes to pray and to apply what we just learned for our church. So I want to invite you to pray silently. We're not going to break up into chairs or anything like that, but right where you're at, I'd invite you to pray silently for our church. Have this text be your outline. To pray for the local church in humility, for power, with expectancy to God's glory. So I'm going to invite you to pray, and then I'm going to come up here, close us in prayer, and then the, the music ministry will lead us in the song of response. Let's pray.